on March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits, stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing so well. You know why? Because we have a great interview today. We have a new theory about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist and one that really opened our eyes uh, a little bit wider. Yeah, and understand, covering this case, it's not easy to come by new theories um, because it's sort of always a rehash of the same mobsters, as we'll get into with our guests, Charles Pinning and Pamela Wall, an interesting duo who's put together, as we said in the last episode, Lance, it's definitely the the best theory, the most interesting theory I think we've heard as far as the Gardner Thieves. Well, it's very interesting uh, for me, uh, mainly because if mobsters, if this crime syndicate that's uh, affiliated with the mafia, if they were behind the the paintings, the theft here, nothing has ever been used. So we're talking about 30 years and they've never surfaced. They've never surfaced as a bargaining chip. All of those topics that, that we cover, uh, why someone in, in, in organized crime would, would commit a heist, they would do it to lower a prison sentence or something of that sort. Uh, some sort of a legal trade would go on. But Charles and Pam's theory doesn't involve anything of the sort. And it's more like performance art, which once he drops this, once the that topic is breached, in their document uh, called Moving Pictures, the filmmakers who robbed the Gardner Museum, they put together this 50-some-odd-page document that details out how this is considered, perhaps, performance art. And some of what they're saying regarding uh, this not being mobsters really kind of makes sense, and I think it might click in your head if you know this story really well. Because some of these details, they've never made sense to people. Like, why such random artifacts? Why the finial from the flat? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's not valuable. Why pass other valuable pieces of art? Why cut them out of the frames? Why not have anything bigger than a hatchback? Right, exactly. And also the time spent in the museum. And I know we've said, like, 81 minutes because they knew no one was coming, because they knew no alarm was tripped and the guards were secured in the in the basement. But even at, even mobsters would know better than to, to push their luck. They know if they're in there for a heist, they know that they need to get in and out as fast as possible. It doesn't matter if the guards are secured. They don't want to go any longer than 10 or 15 minutes, I would imagine. They're certainly not going to gallivant around for almost an hour and a half and just pushing their luck that something might happen that that 81 minutes is very important when it comes to uh this particular theory yeah well you know lance we've been doing this for a little while we've read a lot of books on art crime and it's just something that doesn't typically happen that a thief would spend that long in there they're usually very quick you go in and you you get what you're looking for and you come out right because you're not going to risk any longer than you need you're you're certainly not going to get the paintings and then say, hey, no one's coming. I'm going to let's let's run around for a little bit longer. We got we have you know 60 more minutes of running around the, the museum. So our guests are talking about in this episode, they they really speak mostly about a filmmaker and artist named Joe Gibbons. And he is really where they kind of started their investigation. And then they kind of branch out a little bit. They kind of look at another suspect who could have been um, his associate or, or the, the second thief uh, that evening. Obviously, there's no 
confirmation of this. We uh, have not heard from them regarding this, um, but it is true that one of our guests on this episode, Charles Pinning, did have a conversation with Steve Kirchin, Boston Globe reporter and author Steve Kirchin, and Joe Gibbons. And that is when Joe Gibbons told them that he actually knew the security guard, Rick Abbott. He used to buy weed from him and that he kind of confessed to the Gardner heist in that conversation. Well, he did a bit of what Charles calls confabulation, where he says it's basically like the O.J. Simpson, if I did it, you know, if I did it or if I was present during this. And that's really interesting. Instead of just saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I wasn't even in Boston on that night. You know, he could easily have said that. Instead, he entertained the not only the conversation and the visit from Charles, but he entertained the notion and the concept that he orchestrated and was a part of the actual heist. And there is an article that was written about that meeting between those three fellows. It's uh, from the Daily Beast called The Sociopath Scholar Who Made Films of His Crimes Tried to Confess to America's Most Famous Art Heist. And that came out back in 2017 in September. Um, I remember reading it at the time and not really knowing what to think of it. Um, now hearing it from the other side, from Charles Penning, who has written about it a little bit in that article, it's it's really interesting. And I reference this article because uh, it does come up in the interview, and there is a link in the show notes to this article. And if you look at their past, if you look at all of the players that Charles and Pam are talking about here, and you, and you look into what they've done uh, both artistically and even criminally, uh, it, it also aligns. Uh, Joe Gibbons actually did rob a bank. He, he did it because he wanted to uh, experiment with his performance art. He did it as a piece of art, as like research for a film. And that was his, that was his, uh, his defense on, for robbing the, uh, this bank. And he filmed it too, actually, while with his phone while he uh, while he robbed that bank, which makes you think that something was going on during the eighty-one minutes in the museum. Perhaps there was some filming of a much larger heist. Well, if he's the guy, that would definitely uh, make you wonder. And uh, so maybe we shouldn't say too much more, and maybe we should uh, get to the get to the interview with Charles and Pam. But before we do, we want to read their bios. Um, because they are interesting people and they are really new to this community uh, of ours as far as we knew. Um, so here is Pamela Wall's bio. She grew up in Providence, Rhode Island and attended the Rhode Island School of Design in the illustration department. She has a successful career as a commercial illustrator, first as an airbrush artist and now as a digital artist. And Pam has spent 26 years living and working in the Los Angeles area, but has now returned home to Rhode Island. And Charles's bio, Charles grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, and early aptitude for painting led him to win his high school art prize. Interestingly enough, his teacher, the artist Richard Grosvenor, was related to Isabella Stewart Gardner, Small World. Charles graduated from John Hopkins University, where he developed an interest in writing. Afterward, he moved to New York City, where he wrote for a variety of magazines. And now back in Rhode Island, Charles has for many years been a regular contributor to the op-ed pages of the Providence Journal, for which he has supplied many stories and photographs. His novel, Irreplaceable, which uses the Gardner Museum theft as a backdrop, was published in 2013. Buy it now. He also teaches writing at the University of Rhode Island. Okay, and we'll be back with a quick outro after this interview because there is a lot of information here and uh, we got to, I don't know, discuss it a little bit um, before, before we leave you. So, uh, okay, everybody, thank you very much and we hope you are as interested in this as we are. And if you have any thoughts or your own theories based on this theory, feel free to reach out. Feel free to tweet at us or email us. Welcome to the podcast, Charles Pinning and Pamela Wall. How are you two today? Good. How are you? We are well. I'm well. Very excited to be joining you uh, to tell this story. We are very excited to have you here because 
out of the blue, Charles, you reached out to us. You're a writer, an author, and we'll uh, have you talk a little bit about your your past. Um, but you reached out to us in regards to a theory that you and Pamela have come up with. Uh, before we get into that, though, you wrote a novel called Irreplaceable, and that is based uh, as a fictional account of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And does that have does that have any uh, bearing to the uh, theory? In, in 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 this way, I never bought that organized crime. Uh, was responsible for the theft. Uh, and so, because I, I, wanting to use it as a backdrop to what is essentially a romance, a family story, I really researched back in 2005 everything I could learn about the Gardner theft. And so what I did is I had this idea, a friend of mine was visiting, and it kind of coincided with her making a movie here. I, I decided to have the RISD Museum, the Rhode Island School of Design Museum in Providence, robbed in a manner similar to the 1990 Gardner theft. And so that was, I was able to set my main character rolling, setting up that plot line. Given the facts of the theft, which I'm, you know, happy to rattle off because I think it's really pretty important. You know, the fact that the thieves spent 81 minutes in the museum, professional thieves would have been in and out in under 10. People who robbed the museum weren't armed. Professional thieves, organized crime would have been armed. The fact that 13 pieces of art were taken, etc., a couple stolen pieces of art, one Rembrandt and one Vermeer would have sufficed. In any event, what seemed most plausible to me when I was constructing my novel was that uh, the thieves were art students. Uh, the Gardner Museum is surrounded by art schools, the museum school, mass art. And so uh, the, the way the theft occurred and the fact that no one had ever tried to parley the stolen art uh, into money or trade it, the fact that it seemed to go down a, just a black hole, I just thought, well, art students, art students on a lark. And so that's how I made what I made them in my novel. Okay, so you strayed away from the typical theory that is out there today where I had to because this is the most atypical art theft of all time and so clearly the the robbers wouldn't be your typical robbers and some of the stuff that was taken obviously wasn't going to translate to a lot of money because you had the finial and you had the coup and normal art thieves would have probably just taken a couple of paintings and been out of there. Yeah, that, and also the fact they wouldn't have checked on the guards to see if their handcuffs were too tight, and they also wouldn't have tried to, they wouldn't have jimmied the candy machine. <laughs> and they wouldn't have spent 81 minutes doing all of this. <laughs> so I figured art students, right? Art, young, some young guys doing something a little crazy. Okay, so as you're looking into all of this for your book and you're writing the book, um, when did you decide that this was going to be, I guess, a, an, an official investigation on your end? And when did you include Pamela in this? Yeah, I'll tell you how it became an official investigation. It's sort of a little lead up to this. In 2013, when the book came out, I contacted the Gardner Museum, uh, figuring, you know, there'd be a natural audience for the book. And so I was able to get the staff list off the internet. So I sent them all an email. Well, 10 minutes after I sent that out, I got an email back from Anthony Amore, who went totally ballistic because in my email, I'm just a guy trying to sell a book. And that very same year, two months before in 2013, uh, the FBI had come out and said they knew who robbed the museum. And I said in my email, I think they're bluffing. And that just sent Anthony Amore into a tailspin saying, I'll, I had nothing to do with this book. I will not be buying this book, et cetera, et cetera. And so, unfortunately, I tweaked him a little bit after that and got back to everyone, including him, and said, it sounds like, you know, Mr. Amore wants to solve the theft, but on his terms only. But then flash forward two years to 2015, and I wrote uh, an, uh, an op-ed for the Providence Journal because it was the 25th anniversary of the Gardner theft. And I wrote an op-ed advancing my artists as my artists as thieves theory once again. And then a couple months after that, uh, the gardener offered an extra, I think, $100,000 reward for the finial. And I read Steve Kirkshen's book that once again fingered organized crime, just different organized crime people than the FBI. And I thought, God, I've got to address this one more time. I'm so tired of this, you know, reading this rubbish. And so I started writing another piece for the journal in May of 2015. 
but it just wasn't coming easy. I was so sick of dealing with the Gardner Museum, the Gardner theft. I, I really wanted to move on. And so I said to Pam, you know, who is familiar with this stuff, I said, God, Pam, I, I just can't write this damn thing. I don't know what to do. And she said to me, why don't you Google young people who did something stupid like rob a museum? And so I think I actually Googled, I think I actually Googled young people doing something stupid like robbing a museum. And up popped an article in, of all places, the Providence Journal, I live in Providence, with a very suggestive headline, which was, he robs for art's sake. And I, I remember seeing it when it came out in January, but I didn't read it because it, it dealt with a bank robbery, so I just tuned out. Well, this time I read it all the way through, and I discovered this kind of kooky guy, Joe Gibbons, who uh, had been employed at MIT up until about 2010. He had robbed a bank in Providence, Citizens Bank, and then on New Year's Eve, a bank in uh, New York City. And so I kept on reading about this guy, Joe Gibbons, and it turned out he'd robbed a museum in Oakland, California in 1977 and stolen a uh, Richard Diebenkorn painting then valued at $13,000. And so I thought, whoa, and I started reading more about him, that, that artists should delve into the depths of everything and come up, you know, for their art and whatnot. And um, so I, I Googled Joe Gibbons. And a uh, YouTube, like a three-minute YouTube video popped up. And there he was. A YouTube, a three-minute video came up in YouTube of him in a uh, security guard uniform. And because I was so familiar with the theft, as soon as I saw his face, I, I thought, this is, this is one of the guys who robbed the gardener. And it was an excerpt from a long film he'd made, a 40-minute film he'd made in 2001 called Confessions of a Sociopath. And so I went to Vimeo and it was there and I downloaded the whole thing and I watched it. And it was just astonishing because here was this guy who's a lifelong thief who absolutely fit the description of the, uh, one of the gardener thieves and had this whole philosophy going about, you know, art and how the most, you know, valuable thing about a piece of art was the frame, et cetera. And I was dumbfounded and the hair on the back of my neck went up. And I called Pam and I said, Pam, guess what? And she said, what? And I said, I just found one of the guys who robbed the Gardner Museum. I showed her, the we sat and watched the video together. And she said, I think you're right. So the next day or the day after that, we took it over to her cousin's house and her cousin, A.T. Wall, was at the time the director of corrections, director of the prison system in Rhode Island, and we ran it for him. He looked at it. He found it so compelling that he hooked us up with an attorney in Boston. And so we were off to the races. And that's when I guess it went from simply being, you know, passing interest in the theft to involvement, having found Joe Gibbons. So, Pam, when Charles called you, it was probably a little bit out of the blue. You probably weren't expecting him to say, I think I found one of the people who robbed the Gardner Museum. What went through your head? I was surprised. And yes, you're, you're right. I don't, didn't think it was possible. And he came over and he showed me the video and I was blown away because there was this guy wearing, who had already robbed a museum and he was where and it, and talking about um, museums and police and um, museum directors as you know being not good people, and um, but the seeing him in a, a close up of him in the guard uniform was what really like kind of blew my mind, and I thought, yeah, this is there's too many coincidences here. And just as an aside, you know, as soon as we decided it was, it could be this guy, we started doing more and more research and, you know, the pieces just fell into place more and more. I mean, he, he lived in Jamaica Plain, very close to, to the museum at the time of the robbery. So he was in the vicinity. Being an artist and a filmmaker, made sense with what we had been thinking all along was 
that it was something that was done for a lark, which just fit in with the, the way the robbery went down. So then we took it. Then you said, let's take, go show it to A.T. Right. Her cousin, who is a who's a Yale law degree and a long time. He was the long time uh, director of uh, corrections in Rhode Island. A very solid guy. Not somebody who was going to jump on some wacko theory. So, you know, Pam's suggestion that we take it to him was a smart one. When he saw it, he felt confident enough to to recommend a really top-notch criminal defense attorney in, in Boston. Now, had this individual, Joe Gibbons, ever been looked at in the past? Or is this brand new? No, brand new. He had never been looked at. And our our attorney made sure of that. Uh, he, you know, we went up, well, we showed him the, the, uh, the film confessions of a sociopaths, sociopath. And by that time, like a week after he'd been, you know, we'd been put on to him, we'd collected a little bit more information. So we gave him what we had. He ended up bringing that information, um, in June about, let's see, about a month later, he met, uh, with Anthony Amore and, uh, some very top level, uh, people involved in the case. And he uh, made sure, he asked them if he'd, they'd ever heard of Joe Gibbons, if they'd ever investigated Joe Gibbons regarding the theft. I mean, they'd never even heard of Joe Gibbons. He wasn't on their radar, nothing. Joe Gibbons didn't exist for them. And so he, um, he uh, handed them a CD copy of Confessions of a Sociopath to take home. And then, however, Anthony Amore said, do you represent, he said he'd represented, our attorney said he represented clients in Rhode Island. And Amore said, you don't represent Charles Pinning, do you? Whoa, this is, you know, <laughs> this is two years after our email exchange, mind you. When he relayed the incident to us shortly thereafter, he said that Amore's reaction to my name was visceral visceral that was the word he used and which which has ended up working against us in the long run but i don't want to get ahead of the story so yes uh, no gibbons was not on uh anybody's radar regarding the gardener so then what happened next once we had gibbons's name the the material just started flowing in as we researched him it's sort of like if you're looking for a bear and somebody gives you a picture of a fox well, if you have a picture of a fox and you're looking for a bear, you're never going to find the bear. Well, we finally had, we were looking for a fox with a picture of a fox. So we had the guy and boy, the information just started flowing in about, you know, his roommate, Tony Ausler, who lived with him in Jamaica Plain, who also fit the description of the second thief, who also, uh, it turned out, collected banners who, and of course, uh, an attempt was made to steal the Napoleonic flag before they gave up and popped off the finial and took that. However, he also collected and had a huge interest in winged, you know, creatures with their wings displayed. So it just kept on coming. And then, you know, Joe Gibbons's mentor at Antioch College as an undergraduate was this guy, Tony Conrad, who taught video, who died a couple of years ago, but Conrad taught video at uh, University of Buffalo, SUNY, SUNY University of Buffalo in New York. And he was also a filmmaker and they collaborated on films together. And in fact, they collaborated, collaborated on a film in 1990 together in Boston. And this film was very, was reminiscent to Pam and I, it was called On Our Own. And it, it was something that 14-year-old boys would have made. I mean, they were injecting Clorox and Comet into, into candy and handing it to trick-or-treaters. It was just so wacky. And so we kept on gathering the information. And some of the information that we gathered led us to believe that that particular movie was shot right around the time of The Gardener. That so now we're talking 2015, moving into August. And there was, they were going, and then they released that uh, that tape about Rick Abbott buzzing somebody in the night before. And Pam and I told our, our attorney, God, that might as well be the pizza delivery guy. This is not important. And so our attorney hooked us up with a, one of the top level people knowledgeable about the heist. And we met with that person three times over the course of several months. 
we knew he wouldn't have met with us if, in fact, uh, the FBI knew who had robbed it, as they claimed back in 2013. And so we unloaded all of our information about uh, Gibbons and Ausler and their cohorts to this person and um, hoped for the best. Well, you have uh, previously mentioned this uh, movie that Gibbons made called Confessions of a Sociopath. And in this movie, I'm quoting from the document that you sent us, Moving Pictures, the filmmakers who robbed the Gardner Museum. The The movie uh, Confessions of a Sociopath portrays Gibbons robbing bookstores, principally of expensive art books, gaming parole officers looking for security jobs in Boston, displaying his FBI arrest records, his psychiatric ref- records, always avoiding jail time, racking up parking tickets, talking to a psychiatrist, shooting heroin, drinking, and explaining to the viewer that he doesn't want to work because it interferes with his research. And he says, to get ahead in life, you have to take risks. You have to break the rules, but then you have to ask yourself, whose rules am I breaking? And then he says, life is boring. And this is somebody who robbed a bank and said that it was almost a bit of performance art. Is that is that accurate as well? Oh uh, yeah, I think when he was arrested in 2014, and then on New Year's Eve in 2014, November, Providence bank robbery, and then a couple months later in New York, he had a little pink video camera. I guess he was videoing it, and then you know, so his excuse would be, "Hey, I'm a filmmaker, not really a bank robber. This was just performance art, right?" <laughs> because Joe Gibbons has pretty much filmed his entire life. Uh, when you see Confessions of a Sociopath, you realize that everything he does, he pretty much films. In fact, Pam and I believe that the Gardner theft was filmed. Really? What makes you think that? Oh, yeah. They film nonstop all the time. Um, Rick Abbott had given two weeks notice before the robbery. As you know uh, from that uh, confession that uh, or that interview that Steve Kirkson and I had with uh, Gibbons, Gibbons claimed that he knew Rick Abbott, and uh, I believe he did know Rick Abbott. He either knew him, as he said, from buying pot from Rick at the museum, or perhaps through a security job, because Joe Gibbons was always looking for part-time work to keep on going, as as any artist might, as many artists do. And he was, you know, in sociopath, he's scanning the Boston Globe for security jobs. So in any event, Abbott had given his two weeks' notice, and. Uh, I think a plausible scenario for what happened was uh, Gibbons said to Rick, hey, listen, since we're leaving anybody, how about we shoot a little art heist film, you know, some night at the museum? And Rick, you know, was all in on that. And so, and in fact, this explains one of the big conundrums about the theft was the Manet that was stolen on in the blue room uh, on the first floor. Um, the only footfalls that appeared in the room that night were Abbott's on his uh, rounds before he buzzed in the thieves. And so we're thinking that Abbott on his rounds before he buzzed them in, he grabbed the, the very small Manet painting. And you're talking about something that even in the frame measures a couple feet by a foot and a half, something like that. He grabbed that and then they'd use that for their, you know, their mock, you know, their make-believe museum robbery. And then on another round later in the evening, he'd just put it back on the wall and nobody would be the wiser. So this fits in, you know, so beautifully with you know, what actually happened. And this is, and, and so what happened though, it spun out of control. Why? Hey, Joe Gibbons is a sociopath. Joe Gibbons also, you know, if you read the Art Liberation Front Manifesto after the 77 robbery, there's a real uh, deep-seated and not um, misunderstandable theory about how he feels about art. You know, art being uh, on the wall. So, in any event, they, it goes awry, and it turns into an actual robbery. All right, hold on. Let, let me just reset something, because I'm just trying to put, put this together in my head. Okay, so there's a, a fellow named, named Joe Gibbons, who is a filmmaker, who has made a film called Confessions of a Sociopath, in which he's got a security offer, officer's uniform on, and actually looks quite a bit like the composite sketch uh, from the the thieves, from the the Gardner thieves, and he also robbed a museum in 1977 in Oakland, and he also robbed a bank uh, recently, like as in like the past decade, and filmed that bank robbery. Is that all accurate? 
Yeah, he robbed a bank, Citizens Bank in Providence in November of uh, 2014. And then New Year's Eve, a couple months later, he robbed a Capital One bank in Manhattan. And that's the one he got arrested for. And then he confessed, you know, to the, the Providence bank robbery. He's basically been, a, you know, he, people say, oh, he's, he's a filmmaker. And yes, that's true. But he's also a lifelong thief. Was he ever arrested or uh, convicted, incarcerated for the one in Oakland? No, he was he was remanded to McLean Psychiatric Clinic in Belmont, Massachusetts, and that, in fact, is what typically happens to you know to true sociopaths. They slip off the hook. The first time he ever seemingly spent time in jail for a crime was the New York bank robbery, where he spent eight months at Rikers. And if I can just interject, um, he comes from an upper middle class family. He's well-educated, and he was good-looking, well-educated. I mean, he was he's charming. So he kept on, for all his crimes and all his arrests, people just thought he was harmless, basically. And he kept getting slapped on the wrist instead of any real jail time. Yeah, he wasn't more of a harm to himself than anybody else. What was the art installation that he wanted to do where it was hanging just empty frames? Oh, that was a point of view. After he was caught for the um, the Oakland theft in 1977, they released this uh, so-called Art Liberation Front Manifesto. And the point of it was, he said, look, the actual value of a piece of art is in the frame." because you can ascribe an actual value to the wood, the paint, the construction, whatever. Whereas these inflated values of the art itself are entirely subjective. And so he felt like, wait, you know, let's, I want to see an exhibition of frames only because the art value is almost this meaningless thing. It's so subjective. And so, of course, we know what the gardener has now, a show of empty frames. And now this is very important. You see, the facts of the theft are often overlooked, too, by law enforcement when they go toward organized crime. Organized crime never would have removed every single painting from its frame, including including the postage stamp size Rembrandt etching, which frame and all, you could slip into a coat pocket. Everything was removed from its frame. Yes, you know, the Rembrandt, the big Rembrandt, the two big Rembrandts were cut out, but the rest were knocked out of the frames and stayed on their stretchers the Vermeer, the Manet. And so it took a while to leave behind the frames. So obviously somebody who was just stealing art would have grabbed the stuff, thrown it in a van. No, they took all this time to remove it from the frames and leave the frames behind. And then they put it all in a hatchback. Well, Joe Gibbons also was using and had access to a little white hatchback during that time. Interesting. How do you know that? Well, because... Uh, I very carefully watch Confessions of a Sociopath, and there he is loading stolen books into a little white hatchback that has WG, his father's name, Walter Gibbons, on the Rhode Island license plate, WG, whatever the number was. And so he was using that to, to load stolen books into, and that little white hatchback fits the description of the little white hatchback used in the theft by some of the eyewitnesses. Once I found Joe Gibbons, it was a careful sifting of this voluminous amount of information. And I watched Confessions of a Sociopath many times because once these guys realized, I would say after 1995 and certainly after 2000, that nobody was on their trail, they started leaving all kinds of hints on the internet that I picked up. You know, Tony with his uh, images of uh, eagles with wings displayed, Joe with Sociopath and, and all of his uh, clues. And in fact, he made another film, Day One at the Doppelganger Clinic, where he actually, uh, and that's on the internet, Day One at the Doppelganger, Doppelganger Clinic, and it's a recreation of the stealing of the coup, only using, of course, he, he's in a chapel and he grabs a uh, tabernacle that's to, in the same placement as the coup was to storm on the Sea of Galilee as this tabernacle is to Christ on the cross in this chapel. And he has to pry off the uh, 
tabernacle to steal it, just as the coup had to be pried off of the table it was on. So these guys, they're funny. I mean, they're really, really smart. The sense of play, and this is something that isn't really up law enforcement's alley. I see what you're saying with that. Yeah, I also just wanted to add that Christ is actually in Storm of the Sea, too. So that's the connection there. Exactly, exactly. Yes, Christ is in the boat in the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, and there he is on the crucifix in this chapel. And the the angle, the, the relationship, the placement of both objects is the same. Now, when you start to compile, all, put all these things together, the odds of that are almost zero. Right, right. And I just want to... Uh do a little clarification here. You've mentioned a few names and I don't want the listeners to be overwhelmed. You mentioned Joe Gibbons and you've mentioned um, Tony Conrad. And then you, you mentioned this Ausler character. Um, this, this man is uh, Tony Ausler. He is a relatively famous artist currently working today. Yes, he is. That's correct. He's a pretty well-known so-called avant-garde artist who, He does a lot of things with projections. He also has a real big interest in surveillance. And this, and Joe has a big interest in surveillance. And this dates back to the time of the Gardner theft. And they were roommates in Jamaica Plains back in 1990. And um, they're both, and they both came, as as Pam mentioned earlier, from very Catholic backgrounds. You know, Joe's father was a, a uh, trustee of Providence College in Providence, which is you know, a very Catholic university. Uh, Tony Alzer's grandfather wrote The Greatest Story Ever Told. His name was Fulton Alzer and wrote The Greatest Story Ever Told, the uh, story of Jesus Christ. And his father was an editor of Guidepost magazine. So when these guys, who obviously had strayed very far from organized religion, met, it must have been like meeting your twin brother. And uh, which brings to another important aspect of all of this, you know, doppelganger, day one at the doppelganger. In Joe Gibbons' mind, or certainly it would be his defense, he didn't rob the gardener. The bad Joe robbed the gardener. And, and just as an aside, um, Joe does have a twin brother, too. And so, um, so anyhow, these guys have long had also um, an artistic interest in multiple personality disorder dissociative identity disorder. And so, uh, you know, Joe could certainly use that because of his long time on a psychiatrist's couch saying, well, you know, it wasn't me. I don't think Tony could really use it, Ausler, but uh, um, this is also something that's informed their art to a really large degree. So, you know, you're like, you're like a kid. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. My, my you know, my, that other guy did it. <laughs> right. Did, was there any uh, evidence that, that, Gibbons and or Ausler knew Rick Abbott? When we went down to New York and surprised Joe Gibbons, and we went down to a bar and talked together. And sorry, you're saying we, you mean you and Steve Kirchin? Yeah, yeah, Steve Kirchin and I. See, what that little story bears mentioning because after we were getting nowhere, you know, with law enforcement acting on our information, we thought the best way to crack this thing would be to go public. And so uh, we got in touch with Steve Kirkshen, even though Steve had written a book called Master Thieves, Fingering Organized Crime, I knew from his reporting in the Globe that he really um, understood the facts of the theft. And so I was hoping that he could put aside his personal theory and, um, you know, help us get the story into the Globe. And so he came down to Providence and we sat in Pam's apartment. He came down a dozen times and we discussed all of this. And so finally he and I drove down to New York and, and talked to Joe and Joe couldn't have been more gracious until his wife got home and threw us out of the apartment, her apartment. But he came down, he wanted to keep talking to us because you see, Joe always wanted to know, as did Ausler when I talked to him recently, why do we think, you know, Joe wanted, why do you think I did it? Why do you think, I, what do you know? And so he came down and we bought him a nice, big mojito in the restaurant next door. And um, he talked about knowing Rick Abbott, but he did this confabulation. He called it confabulation where he said, well, he went to the museum the night of the theft to buy pot from Rick Abbott. And Rick was upstairs suddenly and breaking the frames of paintings. And Joe said, no, no, Rick, that's not how you do it. To Pam and I, Joe was simply in the throes of how he knew he was had. So in the throes of that, he was twisting the story around as a child might when caught, you know, ascribing uh, 
uh, blaming somebody else for what was happening. In other words, he he had he pushed his role onto the Abbott character. But yes, and so that's when it finally occurred to us. Yes, Joe had somehow met Abbott either through a drug deal, you know, buying pot from him at the museum, or maybe they both did a security job together. Well, that's pretty remarkable that I would say that he admitted to knowing Abbott and being there that night. Well, we had him. You have to imagine after after at that point that was 2017. That was February 2017. You have to imagine after well, what's that? 27 years of not, you know, being a suspect in this. Suddenly, two guys show up at your door and want to talk to you about the Gardner theft. And so he was pretty well hyperventilating, but he's also a smart guy. And by the time, you know, we talked up in the apartment for about half hour, but by the time we got down to the um, the restaurant next door, uh, he had pulled himself enough together to confabulate, as he said, he used the word confabulation, uh, to put together this story. Now, a most unfortunate thing happened as a result of that, though. The only time Joe Gibbons' name has ever been made public in regard to the Gardner theft was in a Daily Beast article um, later in 2000, about September of 2017, a number of months later. And Kirkshen had most, unfortunately, he recorded our conversation that we had with Joe on his phone down in the, uh, in the restaurant. And he, Steve, in his belief that he could somehow win over Joe as a friend, sent Joe the tape. Well, what Joe ended up doing was contacting a reporter who had already written about him after the bank robbery, a young guy named Ben Feuerherd. And what he did was he took hold of the narrative. So what you do if you're really caught at something, before your head is put in the guillotine, before you're outed, no, you admit, you say, yeah, oh yeah, I did this. Yeah, I was there. You know, and so you turn the narrative. So you're actually saying you're not unfamiliar with this, but you do it in a jokey way. And so then the public dismisses you. They read the story and you're just dismissed as kind of a nut. And so Joe is a masterful sociopath and he was able to take uh, the story of our visit when with this reporter, take hold of the narrative so that when it came out, really the facts are there, but he was dismissed. No one took him seriously as someone who would have robbed the Gardner Museum. It was brilliant. Joe Gibbons was brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> that That is really fascinating. It's also very fascinating that you surprised him by going down to his neighborhood and knocking on his door, and he was able to uh, get himself together enough to answer your questions and um, do the confabulation. Did he give you any indication um, like why he would do something like this? I know in your document you mentioned the Art Liberation Front, which is really interesting. It almost is a bit of a motive for the Gardner heist. Uh, did he mention anything like that? Oh, it's a big motive because because the psychological, you know, the uh, philosophical underpinnings are there. And you have to remember that a philosophy in the end is stronger than money. A philosophical motivation, if you believe in a cause, if you believe in an idea, that will outlive money and beat money every day of the week. You know, think of Catholicism, think of Judaism, think of uh, communism, you know, all of the isms. No, that, that theory of democratizing art, which they actually did by stealing the art from the Gardner, because now many more people are familiar with the Gardner Museum and its famous art than ever would have happened had it not been robbed. And so they won in spectacular fashion. They democratized art. And so in that sort of somewhat silly uh, manifesto of 1977, yes, is very much a motivation. And it's one that's founded really in a truth, because we all know that there's a lot of BS to this valuation placed upon art. You know, people sit there and go, oh, this is worth this. This is, this is great. And this is worth $10 million. And that's worth 10 bucks. There's an arbitrariness to it that is especially unnerving uh, to imagine if you're young and you're trying to make your way in the art world and get a show in a gallery, or you're a writer trying to write a book, or you're an illustrator trying to sell your work and get, you know, get work. It's a tough thing to do. And so um, you can really start to turn against the powers that be. 
as a matter of fact, Tony Conrad actually did do that. Didn't he was he picketed the Museum of Modern Art? Isn't that correct? He picketed MoMA and Lincoln Center. You know, this is back in the 60s before he met Joe at Antioch in the early 70s when Joe was a student and Tony was a professor. Yeah, he picketed it, you know, down with snob culture, uh, down, you know, destroy the museum, destroy snob art. Uh, he very much had that philosophy of um, democratizing art and that basically establishment art, music, all of that was just a bunch of hokum. And needed to be brought down. And so God knows he found a willing set of ears when he met Joe uh, back in the early 70s at Antioch before Joe then went out, you know, I think it was to San Francisco State or the San Francisco Art Institute and, you know, robbed the Oakland Museum in 77. But all they remained lifelong friends, very close. And then, you know, when he met, when Joe met Alsler in the early 80s, Alsler had already met, you know, Conrad. And so these, these people... They're friends, colleagues, associates, having a great time together, but with a definite, definite understanding that the art world was a screwed up place and needed to have a lot of fun poked at it, which is kind of the truth. <laughs> All right. So, so Kirchin was, was buying this uh, story from Gibbons as well? Oh, boy. You know, Steve was a conflicted character in all of this, and Pam could talk to it, too. I mean, he had a hard time... We had him sign an NDA, which was the smartest thing we ever did, because um, you know a friend of mine had told me never trust a reporter. No, Steve came down, signed our NDA, that he wouldn't share any of our information with anyone without our written consent, and we started laying out the story of Joe Gibbons, and it took Steve, I mean his head, wow, <laughs> you know, because Steve's a smart guy and he could, he could see it but he kind of didn't want to believe it but the more we rolled it out and the more we rolled it out he saw that there was a a great deal of plausibility there but you know unfortunately steve wanted to be the hero and he didn't feel that the story could be broken uh until we had the smoking gun and i said steve so much has been written about organized crime people and other characters uh we have way more than that and i said plus as pam was the one who brought this to my attention years ago. She said, you know, Charles, organized crime, all they have about organized crime on organized crime figures is the testimony of scam artists and thieves. All of the information we have about Joe Gibbons is fact. It's fact. Basically, everything that we have, we found on the internet, you know. Yeah, our research and actually existed and happened or was made. And if you look at the organized crime figures that, um, you know, law enforcement has been pursuing for 30 years, 30 years without any, any success. I mean, Jeff Kelly, the FBI guy in charge of the case, he's been on it since 2002. And Amore was hired in 2015. So you're talking 18 and 15 years, respectively, without coming up with coming up with nothing, nothing. You know, they, they, they track down these hapless old gangsters like Gentile in Connecticut and whatnot, who, you know, ignoring really the facts of the theft, you know, what makes sense from actual facts versus the testimony of con artists. Would you say that uh, Joe Gibbons and Tony Ausler and Tony Conrad were con artists as well? In a more esoteric way, of course, because you can't fake art. If you make a movie, you make a movie. If you make an illustration, as Pam does, it's there. It's, 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 you can't refute it. You may not like it. I write a book. It's there. Artists are pure in their own way. What we create stands on its own. So con artists? Oh, I think Joe as a sociopath has been a con artist, uh, slipping off the hook uh, of his many, many, many arrests uh, and avoiding jail time. I mean, even for the Providence Bank robbery, I ran into his attorney and the attorney said to me, I thought he was going to get at least three years. And and I said, why, why didn't he? And he said, I don't know, the incompetence of the prosecutor. And sociopaths, if you study them, are in fact con artists and usually get away and, and, and on personal levels and professional levels. Very interesting study, actually. Uh, and con artists normally don't finally end up in prison until they kill somebody. And I'm certainly not implying that Joe Gibbons would kill anyone. Joe Gibbons, Gibbons is funny. He's, not, he's a very charming guy. I like Joe. I like Tony Ausler in as much as I know him. So... Con artists, yeah, sort of, 
but aren't all artists kind of con artists? We're trying to put a story over, a picture over, a painting over. We're not con artists the way organized criminals are. Right, right. Now, you you had mentioned, uh, I think Pamela said that uh, she was pretty convinced that they took a video of this. They made they they filmed this robbery. And if that's the case, which it makes sense. I mean, if this is a, if if this theory is accurate uh, and you're talking about people who filmed everything, um, they probably filmed this. This is probably why they did it. Uh, is, they've been leaving these breadcrumbs since uh, you said probably like 95 when they realized no one was really onto them. Why haven't they put out pieces of the film that they that they shot? What's what's the delay there <laughs> that's t- then they're gonna then their ass is going to be in a sling <laughs> because they're smart enough to know that no matter what the museum says or law enforcement about oh just give us the art back and it'll be fine ha 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 who's going to trust the fbi would you trust the fbi what are you talking about they're the fbi yeah right they're the- <laughs> this actually might be a good time to bring up the letter the 94 letter Oh, yes. Um, In 1994, the museum received a letter uh, that they felt to be credible. And it was credible because uh, the person who wrote it said, in 1994, a letter to the Gardner Museum that offered return of the art for money. The letter writer established his bona fides by by stating, a point of qualification is that the perpetrators were not dressed as police officers, as reported by the press, but were instead dressed as security guards. Anne Hawley, the uh, museum's new director at the time of the theft in 1990 until her retirement in 2015, has always regarded this correspondence as one of the most legitimate pieces of evidence in the theft. Well, legitimate because the person said no. They were not dressed as Boston police officers. They were dressed as security guards. So you're saying because every every uh, publication that I've seen that reports this reports it as police uh, uniform. So you're saying that detail was actually a holdback and the gardener and the FBI has known that it was actually security guards all the time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes. Because so the museum played along with that letter. And so there was a second letter. They played along and the person said, okay, put a, if you're going to play ball with us, put a one in front of the, uh, the lira in the Boston Globe, you know, the weekly currency print printout. And to let us know that you're, you know, you agree to our conditions of that the FBI stand down and all that. So the museum did put the one in front of the lira. And but then that was it. They never heard from the person again. And Pam and I assume that uh, they thought better of it because it's real hard, real hard. If you're being dogged by, you know, the FBI might be pretty hard to return something and not get snagged, you know. So I think they just thought better of it. They had a moment of maybe thinking they could turn it into a few bucks, but they thought, nah. So do you think that the uh, robbery was um, a spontaneous event or was it planned out? Did they case the place? They knew the place. Our theory is that it, it was, you know, they, they went in to make a movie, which is what they do. And um, it kind of went off the rails at a certain point, you know, even though uh, Rick Abbott had, had voluntarily let them in. He was he he didn't sign on for that. But he was caught on film. He was caught on film, so he was already screwed. Now, if you again, if you go back to the seventy-seven uh, Art Liberation Front piece in the in, in the Berkeley Barb, they talk about publicity-hungry organization were inveterate opportunists. Gibbons said. The, Gibbons, the spokesperson for the six-member group, told the Barb, "Our philosophy is full of contradictions." It has nothing to do with Diebenkorn. It was about museums in general. We saw the opportunity for some publicity and we grabbed it. And it talks about how they must always act spontaneously. And so this idea of spontaneity is something that's been in Gibbons' mind, you know, for a long time. And in fact, it's kind of the way he's lived his life. Joe's a pretty spontaneous guy. And uh, I think that what happened was they told Rick Abbott that they were going to shoot a museum robbery film, you know, and then he'd put the painting back, but it spun out of control. It went elsewhere. And I wonder whether even Alsler 
had any clue that it was going to spin out of control. But once it did, there was nothing that they could do. Or they were really stoned. Who knows? Maybe they were high on LSD. I don't know. Um, at the time uh, that this happened, Tony was teaching at Mass Art. He was very unhappy about that. Joe wasn't particularly happy. So who knows where their head was when this happened. But that's, that's what we think is the most plausible. It started out as a, as a movie about an art theft, and then it became an actual art theft. So what would be keeping Rick Abbott from going to the authorities and saying, you know, they came in wanting to make a movie. I, you know, I was a dumb kid. I, I let them in and it got out of control. Well, he's complete. He didn't just let him in. If they filmed it, he's complicit. There he is involved in, in the fake movie. Maybe uh, he didn't want to be known for the rest of his life as being that stupid. I don't know. I mean, once, the, you know, you have to remember that the, the art was cut out of the frames and he was there. You know, he was complicit in that destruction, you know. And who knows how complicit he was in the actual theft, depending on their mindset, him th still thinking at a certain point, this is just a make-believe art theft. Now, I will say that one of the very high people involved in this case told Pam and I, Rick Abbott has to be involved. That was the one thing he insisted on. Rick Abbott has to be involved. When we first heard that, we couldn't quite figure out how Joe Gibbons and Rick Abbott would have known each other. But after talking to Joe, you know, a couple of years later uh, and his confabulation and all suddenly, you know, it coalesced in our mind how they had, how they would have known each other because this had to be an inside job. It had to be. We believe Rick Abbott was involved, knew Joe prior to the theft and that it went down in some fashion similar to what we've described. And Rick once he was cleared, why does he want his name ever attached to such a crazy thing? Why would anyone? Well, he, you know, he, he could go to jail. I mean, there would, would be no way that he would know that he would get off. Right. He might have been thrown into jail, even if he, you know, he said, this is what happened and yada, yada, yada. Well, yeah, you're right, Pam. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he's friends with them or there's some connection from before the robbery, that's going to be tough to get to talk his way out of, you know, and and also 81 minutes. And if he wasn't tied up for those for all those 81 minutes, then he should have been hitting hitting the uh, security alarm. Hey, that's a good point. That's you just made a very good point. You're right. He would have had opportunities to hit the button. But once they, once they started cutting art out of frames, then he, he was complicit at that point. Yeah, it could be true. I, I don't know. It's definitely uh, the, the most compelling single theory I've ever heard. Uh, so I want to applaud you both for that. Well, thank you. You know, it really just stems from having the right person. Because if you don't have the right dramatis personae, you can't, the story ain't going to work. And that's been the problem, uh, you know, with law enforcement and their pursuit of organized crime. That's Those are the characters that they usually play with. I approach this with an open mind. I'm not law enforcement. I had no dog in this fight when I was writing my novel. Um, so, you know, I just had a completely open mind. And so the fact that being art students seemed very logical to me, given the facts, the facts. Well, you know what? We have been looking into this um, for a couple of years now, going on season three of Empty Frames. And in season one, we went the uh, the typical route. We looked at all of the characters, the Miles Connor, the Whitey Bulgers. And one of the questions that we kept coming to and one of the roadblocks that we kept um, encountering was Whitey Bulger. Uh, allegedly saying that he had nothing to do with it and he didn't know. He didn't know who pulled this off. And we always say, like, you know, he ruled the streets then. Like, th that time period was pretty big for him. And if he didn't do it and he didn't know who did it and he didn't order it, what I'm trying to say is someone like Whitey Bulger wasn't going to just let that happen in Boston. And... If Whitey Bulger couldn't have found somebody in his circle, uh, his criminal syndicate then where, where else are you going? And we've never talked about art students. We've never talked about film students. We've never talked about anybody other than these criminals that are in a, a mafia syndicate. You know, Pam and I have talked a lot about this, this, these frustrations. Law enforcement, it's possible that once they locked into a theory, you know, that it was 
organized crime, they couldn't unclench, or they just... They've gone down the road for so long, it's hard to turn back and say, oh, oh, oh. We're wrong. And, and, and honestly, a, a sad part of this is, I don't think they want to see us be right, because frankly, it would be humiliating for them. I mean, how the hell could a writer and an illustrator in Providence figure out something they couldn't figure out in 30 years? I mean, it would just, it wouldn't look very good. Yeah, I, I don't think they, they, they don't want us to be right and they don't, or and or they can't unclench from this organized crime theory. But again, if you look at the facts, 81 minutes, the number of minutes, the whole thing, the number of pieces of art that were stolen, Jimmy in a candy machine, unarmed, are your handcuffs too tight? No way, no way would your organized crime criminal conduct it like this. They would have grabbed a couple of pieces, been in and out in 10 minutes. Done. Done. Yeah, the 81 minutes is certainly uh, a really weird detail uh, when you think about people who actually smashed frames and cut paintings out of frames. Well, if you're filming it, and let's say, say, okay, you didn't come, you came to make a movie, but then when you look at that picture in the Dutch room, that secret door behind the Storm on the Sea of Galilee opened into the conservation lab where you would find an X-Acto knife, a screwdriver. And the truth is people say, oh, they were violently ripped from the frames. No, no, no. They were carefully, surgically cut out of the frames. And as every painter and artist knows, when you cut a painting out of a frame, you lose very little and very little damage is done. All right, Lance, what do you think? How wild is that information? It is crazy information. The only problem I have is if what they're saying is actually true and the relationship between Abbott and Gibbons existed, I'm a little confused as to the sketches of the two perpetrators that was given to the cops that night. Uh, if someone knew who came in to do this heist and, and Abbott got caught up in, in the whole thing, I don't know why he would be describing people perfectly when he could say, like, you know, this this guy looks like this or it was a woman. You know, he could have easily lied. But the other guard who might not have uh, had that level of involvement that um, that Charles and Pam are, are considering um, would have seen the same people and would have had to have given the same account, too. So I don't know. I'm not so sure. But, you, you know, I, th I think we'll have Charles and Pam back and because there is a lot more information to go over. You know, we really just kind of scrape the surface here. And uh, it is it is really compelling. I think the idea of of them filming the heist actually, like, gives me goosebumps. I get kind of creeped out by it. I don't know why. I, I think it's the thought of actually seeing that video someday, the possibility of that on film. I totally agree. You'd be watching probably the most significant crime in history filmed. I mean, the, the most significant heist, at least, filmed. Uh, imagine that. Like, um, imagine if tapes of the Zodiac came out one day. How, I mean, it's, it's at that level, I think. Yeah, in the art crime world, it's, it's insane how, how big of a deal uh, this heist is and how incredible it would be to actually see film of the frames getting smashed and those paintings getting cut. And I also want to say that the point about the 1994 letter to Anne Hawley, um, which uh, kind of gets into the what Charles and, and Pam are considering a holdback, being that the thieves were actually dressed in security outfits and not police uniforms, which has only been reported in all the books and all the articles. It's only reported as police uniforms. Charles and Pam are saying that it's actually security outfits, and that's evidenced by Anne Hawley considering the ransom note that she got as being a very credible lead. And so they said in that letter, apparently, that about security outfits and not police uniforms. And so that actually leads a, lends a little bit of credence to this, this idea. I, I wonder. I mean, it's kind of easy to say, but then when you point to that fact that Anne Hawley really considered it to be credible, then you have to wonder. Absolutely. And these individuals repeatedly stated that the most valuable part of fine art was the frames. 
and the frames are what is left there. I don't know if that's a calling card, but it is a really interesting fact to uh, to sort of mentally uh, exercise on. And they're all very much anti-art snob, that culture. They they protested uh, Lincoln Center. They, they had a an organization that was um, set up just to just to showcase the, I guess, the hypocrisy of being in the fine art culture. And this fits right in. This A heist like this fits right in with that. Now, we will have Charles and Pam back, and we'll ask them additional questions and go deeper. But one thing I, that's occurred to me is, you know, where is the art, though? If it is these guys, where is the art? And why hasn't Gibbons somehow sold it or benefited from it? That is a great question. And we can only speculate as to the answer. It could be in the attic of one of their relatives and no one knows. We know that Tony Ausler is a very successful artist today. Uh, This might not do so well for him if it came out that he was involved in this, if it is true. Um, Or it might skyrocket everyone's career. I mean, I think at this point, you're you're almost considered like a, a folk legend. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree with that, with that second point there. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it would do anything to hurt either one of their careers. Okay, everybody, that's episode six. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.